HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Good afternoon, Heather. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. How about yourself? I am doing outstanding. It's a pleasure to be here on the Farm Report once again. Yeah, we're happy to have you help us introduce two great interviews we have coming up. Yeah, one of the things I love about Heritage Foods, the ethos of Heritage Foods USA, is the concept of saving Heritage Foods by eating them. And we have two outfits today that kind of prove that. Um, We're going to talk to Eric and Colleen Rapp of Leon, Kansas, uh, the rare barn. They raise rare breed rabbits, and the rabbits that they've chosen are remarkably similar to uh, jackrabbits. They're a hardy breed with long hair and long ears, and this is a good thing because the raps live in what is essentially Tornado Central in Kansas, Mm -hmm. and they'll have weather swings from tornadoes and hail to 100-degree Fahrenheit summer weather, and this is not a problem for them because they have the right breed of rabbits. Yeah, and this is a model that can sounds like can be uh, reproduced anywhere in our country at that point. Yeah, I think that's the that's the beauty of what they're doing, and and it's uh, interesting because Colleen Rapp was uh, with the American um, Heritage Livestock Association, I think was the name of the outfit. yeah the ALBC, the American Livestock Breed Breed. Okay, that's it. Yeah, um, all about the breed and the genetics. As we yeah, know. and they're really doing some great work to preserve heritage genetics, and not only preserve them, but to actually foster them and bring them back into production. Um, the other folks we're going to talk to today, uh, Wes and Charlotte Swansea of uh, Greenview Farms, a little north of Atlanta in Georgia, are a really great example of um, a kind of two-generation two operation that is moving from the first generation's commodity production to the second generation's differentiated production. And they are raising pigs out there. And um, Wes's dad uh, was a commodity pig farmer, and Wes and Charlotte are biologists by training, but they wanted to come back and get involved in the land and and agricultural production and help their dad make the switch um, into a more differentiated, sustainable model. Uh, like so, any child-parent relationship, we're the ones ready to make the change, the younger generations. Yeah, or or motivated maybe, but sometimes lacking the knowledge and the wherewithal and the experience to do it. 
Yeah, well, that brings us back to um, Q Report theme of roots that we we often go back to. You still got to stick with your roots and uh, look up to your parents and elders for advice and, you know, to be your mentors. Absolutely. I don't think you can change, you know, you can't, you can't turn around the battleship of our culture and, and everything in a bathtub. It's going to take a takes a concerted effort and everybody's got something to bring to the table. That's kind of the theme of today's farm report. I hope you have a great day. Yeah, enjoy your Mother's Day. Thank you for joining us this Sunday, and I look forward to speaking with you next week. Yeah, and I've been called a lot of things. Mother is probably not the worst of them. Well, I just... You have yourself a good one, and, and uh, <laughs> thanks to all the mothers out there listening. Thank Adios. You. Take care. Bye, Brian. Bye. Hey, Eric, how are you today? Uh, doing pretty good. Thank you for joining us. It's, uh, we're with the Heritage Radio Network, and we're with Eric Rapp of the Rare Hair Barn in Leon, Kansas. And um, Eric, why don't you tell me uh, and our listeners a bit about your farm and what it is you raise? Uh, what we've got is a heritage breed of rabbit farm, and they're um, rabbits that existed back in the 20s and 40s, and we're, the work we're doing is trying to get that breed back into the condition it was used for back in that time frame for meat and fur and there's a lot of work that needs to be done with it because they've kind of been taken down the show circuit and the qualities that were there back in that time have been lost so that's kind of what we're working with and uh, the end product of the work is going out to uh, restaurants or uh, people that are needing breeding stock. So um, where did you acquire your breeding stock from? Uh, it was about a two-year wait. Uh, like most heritage breeds, they're not a uh, drive-up window item. You can just call up and drive by and pick them up. We started with uh, what I would call some of the existing breeders in uh, Indiana and brought back uh, some seed stock from there and started working from there. And then within our own herd, kind of started on improvements uh, from those breeds. Um, what breeds exactly did you choose? Right now we have the American Blues and White and also Blanc de Otos and the American Chinchillas. And um, how, did they, how did you and uh, Colleen decide to choose these breeds to raise from the many heritage breeds that seem to have been available when you went up to Indiana? Uh, I've been around rabbits. I'm kind of a third-generation rabbit raiser. My granddad um, raised rabbits back in the early 40s and even probably before then, and then kind of went on to my mom. But um, we started looking at um, something to improve the quality of food that we were eating, and the experience I had in rabbits, we kind of toyed around with the idea of something that uh, wouldn't take up a lot of space. Mm-hmm. Looked into the American Livestock Conservancy's uh, records to see what rabbits were in need of the most work and kind of went from there, and then the hunt became to find the breeding stock. Right, so you were lucky to find the rabbits that were listed on the uh, American Livestock Breeds Conservancy. And when you say need help, you mean keep their breed alive and in the marketplace. Yes, there, like I say, there's... Um, a lot of it has gone the show route, and um, that's pretty much the people that have them uh, left were the ones that were strictly doing show. The production end of it is pretty much gone. So show, just for like a, a, a rabbit show, just to show the yeah, breeds? Yeah, similar to dog show, cat shows, that 
type of thing where they bring them bring them in and compare breeds against each other. Um, well, um, what would you say? What features of these rabbits that um, you chose? You know, like the Blanc de Hotel you said. What features set them apart and made you choose them aside from the, the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy list? Uh, one of the things we've kind of found in the heritage breed rabbits are. Uh, the ear length on them is much longer than a lot of the commercial breeds, and that goes back to the jackrabbit theory of those survived in all kinds of weather, the hot and the cold and, and that sort of thing. So what the location of the country we're in, we don't have really, we have all kinds of weather. We're in Tornado Alley like last night. We had 80-mile-an-hour wind and inch and a half rain and hail all within 20 minutes. Wow. So, and then it can go the other extreme and be 110 degrees. So uh, we tried a couple breeds, the old commercial breeds, and they just were uh, extensive workload to keep them cool. So we started looking into the, the heritage breeds and come to find out there was the, the long ear length that's resemblance to the jackrabbit. So wow. we uh, took those on and found that they did real well and pretty much all of our weather conditions here and didn't take a lot of work as far as keeping them cool in the summer and, and worrying about them in the winter. Wow. So it sounds like your your model or the breeds that you've chosen can actually work in many parts of the country. And uh, there's a chance that these breeds, as long as they're kept, uh, you know, the, the um, actual genetics are kept passed around, that we really can continue to grow these populations just about anywhere. Yeah, that's uh, as, what we're finding. Like I say, the we're continually working with them. There's a lot of structural issues with them that don't go back to the old breed standards that need work, but there's a lot of capabilities in those breeds that you can start with and then start working with the, the body conformation and stuff on them to get them back to the old breeds. Right, and you actually mentioned that you're a third-generation uh, rabbit farmer, so you would have that expertise to uh, allow that to happen and really um, make sure that the breeding practices and everything are are moving forward in the best way possible. Well, one of the, one of the issues we run into, and, and thank goodness for the uh, software programs that are out there now to track breeding coefficients, and that's one of the jobs that Colleen kind of takes care of for me, is uh, because the gene pool is so shallow that we try to spread out as far as we can that gene pool so we're not you know, inbreeding to the point of causing more problems, which you still will find in rare breeds. You have to sometimes breed closer to relatives than what you'd like to. So there's a lot of work we're doing there. We're trying to, we're finding out that some breedings don't work, and then you go to the next uh, breeding to try to get that to work and then build from there. Um, well, what do you see um, as the future of heritage rabbit movement in the United States? The way it's going right now, I think uh, education is probably the the biggest obstacle, and I'm almost confident that we're losing that every day. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of people that are interested in it till it comes to the point of wanting to consume the the meat from it, and then there's an issue. They've raised it up with the intentions of, of having it as a meat source, but then what do I do now? Right. And how do Got you, it. How do we get people to consume more rabbit meat? I mean, is it that exotic of an animal? 
Well, it, if you look at the, uh, go back, and we have a pretty extensive collection of old rabbit books, there was hundreds of thousands of pounds of rabbit consumed back in the 40s during the war period and stuff like that, that rabbit really was just as much a mainstay as beef or anything else. There was huge rabbit trees that just looked like confinement hog operations. Mm-hmm. And we run into people that have, oh, yeah, I've had rabbit, don't know where to get it, but then they don't know how to cook it. Yeah, that's... And so they'll cook it wrong, and then they have a bad experience with it, and then they no longer want to you know, pay the little bit extra for the better taste and everything. It comes with something that's more homegrown. Understandable. So, um, yeah? I'm sorry, hello? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was going to ask, um, I know you're a third-generation rabbit farmer. Are you very far from where you grew up? Um, what is the history of the land where you currently are in Leon, Kansas? Uh, we're actually, it's in the south-central part of Kansas in the Flint Hills. And it's the continent's largest remaining track of tall grass prairie. There's probably... 450 species of plants and 150 kind of birds and 31 species of mammals. And the ecosystem here is unbelievable. A lot of people assume that Kansas is flat, and, of course, you go out in the wheat country, and it is, but there's cattle shipped into the Flint Hills just like horses go to the Kentucky for the bluegrass. They, they come by here and semi-loads from Florida, Louisiana, just to graze on the bluegrass. So that's how it kind of got here, and, and we somewhat homesteaded this 40 acres we're on because when we came here there was nothing but a perimeter fence wow and we somewhat camped out in a mobile home (laughs) and started our little farm and then we now have an adjacent 40 acres that we leased that uh, we'll be running our starter herd of piney woods cattle on nice and um are there any other animals that you have grown um, that you raise on your land besides rabbits yeah we have a small herd of jacob sheep and we have a small flock in Nankin Phantoms, which are all uh, ALBC-listed animals. I was just going uh, We ask. have a pretty good herd of horses of a mixed project that Colleen has going on. But uh, we're trying to uh, find animals that need the most work and use our expertise on it and find a, a market for them so we can pass the genetics on to other people and get more uh, livestock in the hands of people that want to conserve them. That sounds, that sounds like a good plan. Um, who would you say are the members of your production chain that you interact with that are most important to your survival? Uh, probably number one would be the, the household bookkeeper, Colleen, and then it kind of comes down the line as far as our feed processors. Um, I'm today spent a little bit of time with my uh, local feed plant that actually makes our, our rabbit feed and going over some things with him, so... They're kind of our start of the process, and that's a huge cost right there in the feeding end of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then uh, with the heritage breed animals, there's uh, the big obstacle is our specialty food processors, which you can't take most of these to your local slaughter plant and get them processed. Uh, there's only one company in the state of Kansas that will do rabbits. Mm-hmm. So. And it's a, you know, a trip for us. So the food processors are a big point. And then probably the biggest thing is having happy consumers that will 
you know, these, these animals have to have a job for you to work with them and have something for them to do or it's just going to, the food chain's going to stop. Meaning you need a market and an outlet and someone to, to pay a Whether premium price. Retail, you know, like what you guys do there at Heritage Foods with marketing ends for us and stuff like that. So if they don't have a job and somebody's not consuming them or they're ending up in a, a uh, museum or something as exhibit animals, then hmm. they're dead-ended basically and, and people won't want to work with them. Yes. Um, and quality control, I mean, that's the, the biggest thing is, is having a control over every process you put into your items. Definitely. If there was um, one farm issue that you could write into law, what would it be? It goes back to processing. Right now there's the USDA federal and local levels. That to me it looks like they're doing the same inspections but to ship out of the state. You have to be USDA federally inspected, hmm. and there's a facility that's nine miles down the road from us that doesn't do rabbits, and there's too many obstacles for them to, to do it. So I know there's some work being done, and it's like everything else, it's a slow process, but it sure would be nice for everybody to get on the same page, and I think it would help a lot of these processors to know what they could do to help the producers out. Yeah, no, that definitely sounds sounds like a, a nice uh, thought for sure. Um, what do you have a? How long have you and Colleen been on your land for? We have been here since nineteen ninety five. Since nineteen ninety five, and do you have a, a five or ten year plan for how you uh, hope to move forward with things? Well, what we're looking at right now is the rabbit production into the farm is is doing real well and we've kind of building it in stages so like the economy has done here lately if something tanks on us we're not going to be totally into a, a bunch of equipment and stuff like that so we're kind of build it in phases move out of one unit into another kind of sort of uh, time frame and then go from there and get it up to about 100 does, which would produce around 2,100 offspring a year. And, wow. of course, out of that, um, there's a huge demand for the breeding stock. Mm-hmm. Um, That's great. There's a lot of calls that come in are from people that are um, moved to five or six acres and they want to feed themselves, whether it's gardens or or meat or any kind of items like that. So we're getting a lot of people that are wanting to feed themselves, plus they're wanting to do something to help out a breed. And a lot of them start out that line. Of course, I, I kind of feel sorry for them because they run into the, you just can't get it to them hmm. as soon as they call. Of course. But um, are these young farmers with experience? or are they, I mean- They're mostly, you know, people that are probably in their late 30s 40s have a few kids um you know and and may have had an experience on a relative's farm or something like that or spent a summer or something or parents raised a few uh, rabbits or chickens or something like that and really not a i don't think there's a fear to get their feet wet it's just getting getting what they want to them when they want it so they don't get discouraged Definitely. And you think rabbits, I guess, is a good way to start off. I mean, it sounds like the animals are um, pretty easy to, you know, not necessarily pretty easy, but it sounds like they're a good choice for a beginner farmer. Well, they, they don't take up a lot of space um, 
software equipment. You can pretty much put into them what you want to. You can pretty much uh, feed them scraps out of your garden, and, and you know, there's, they're a pretty versatile animal as far as that. We actually had gotten uh, Sarah Grant to uh, do rabbits raised on, actually on prairie grass pasture alone, and um, so they were fed no, no uh, manufactured feed at all. So it can be done if you get the right animals, and that's kind of what we're working with if we're seeing a certain breed that has things that stand out that we need to work on that makes a rabbit where you don't have to buy a bunch of commercial feed to finish it out. Yeah, so you must um, have worked hard to come up with the, the perfect recipe for the feed for your animals. Is that true? Well, the we from the old collection of books we have, we kind of found uh, rations that were used on the rabbits back then. Of course, a lot of them, I was looking at one yesterday that it cost them about $2.10 a hundred pounds of feed, and you can't touch that today, and you're using basically the same ingredients. Hmm. Um, you know, if you can get your, your rabbit feed costs under 20 cents a pound, you're lucky today, and that's depending on what feed company you're using. Yeah, you got to keep those relationships tight so they can give you a good deal, hopefully. Um, now, what would you say American food is? Um, to me, that's going to be the, the foods that um, were, I, I guess, I want to say the Native American Indians. I don't, you know, I guess everybody thinks American food's probably pizza and hamburgers and things like that, but I, I just feel like it's food that was, um, you know, they had a diverse cooking style, and they had all kinds of ingredients to work with and pretty much lived off the land. And it's kind of interesting that a lot of these people we talk to, that's almost the same conversation you have with them, that they want to go back to living off the land and okay, what do I need to do that with the least amount of trouble? And it's definitely not fast food. Nope, it's uh, slow food. It's just the opposite. And it's a movement and a, something that we're all looking to go back to. Bringing it back to the basics and to the land is something that we uh, as a country may have to do sooner rather than later. <laughs> so, Eric, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And uh, we hope to have you on again soon. And uh, thank you. And no problem. Anytime I can... Uh push these heritage animals and the products from them, I'm more than glad to do it. Well, we learned a lot, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank Take you. Care. Bye. Bye. Hey, Charlotte, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. We're here with uh, Charlotte Swansea of Riverview Farm in northwest Georgia. Um, Charlotte, can you tell me and our listeners a bit about your farm and what you raise? Uh, well, our farm... We farm about 500 acres, about an hour north of Atlanta. We raise Berkshire pork, um, grass-fed beef, vegetables, and then we grow all the corn and roast soybeans for our pigs, and we grow about 10 different types of grasses for our cows. Wow. Our farm is a um, closed system system in that we, uh, we grow everything for our animals, and we utilize all their manure for all the vegetables and crops that we grow for them. Um, the only thing we source off the farm are seeds and lime, mm-hmm. and uh, that's, <laughs> we, we, we try to stay diversified and sustainable as possible. 
Would you say that you save money on your feed costs because of the um, grasses and the corn that is growing on your land? At least a little? (laughs) That would be a great theory. Um, (laughs) Well, um, a little, but since we're certified organic, it, you know, we, we still, even though we're growing it, we have the same costs incurred in that we have to pay for fuel and seed and labor and all that goes along with it. So I'd say it's still about roughly the same. It's a little, it's a good bit cheaper in that we do have the organic feed available a little cheaper than what, what other people were getting it for. So yeah, there's a little. Now, you say you're certified organic. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of your land and when it is that you became certified? Uh, My husband's father, Carter Swansea, bought the land in 1973. At that time, a farmer could go to the bank and say, hey, I want to farm. And Mm. uh, the bank would say, all right, and lend them the money and help them get started. Things have changed. Um, (laughs) Uh, so he bought the farm and started, he grew conventional crops, but he was very diverse. You know, he had cows, he had pigs, um, he was you know, growing, growing commodity crops. Um, that kind of changed in the late 80s and 90s when it became cost prohibitive to have the animals and grow the grain as well hmm. to feed them. So he got rid of the animals and started renting more land and, of course, Try to grow bigger because if the, the industrial model says get bigger or get out. Wow. Well, how many acres is the farm or was it then? Uh, the farm is, has always been about 200 acres and he was renting land all over the county. At that time, he, he was still small in the scheme of things. He, I think at his largest was about 2,700 acres hmm. um, all over the county. And, but now he's scaled back to about 500 acres. Um, when my husband and I got married, we were we both studied chemistry and were really not looking forward to spending life in a lab. Um, that does not sound we, like fun. <laughs> yeah, we found it tragic <laughs> that a farm this size, small, could not make it work in close proximity to a large city like Atlanta. It just did not make sense. Right. And, um, we we decided. It was a good opportunity to move back and see what we could do. Um, we started raising medicinal herbs and vegetables, and his father started to see, well, hey, there is going to be a market for organic feed and um, you know, corn and beans and wheat, things like that. So he began to transition into organics and shrinking this amount of land that he rented. Hmm. And, um because he didn't need to, he didn't need all that land anymore. Right. So, do you think that your young age and coming back to the farm um, gives you some sort of, you know, forward-thinking attitude that affects the commitment to growing organically and sustainably? Yeah, I do, and I, I think, you know, for him to see, for what his father to see, well, you know, my son is is interested in, in doing this, and there is a. There, there's he can make a living doing this, and yeah, let's let's do it this way. I mean, all farmers want to farm sustainably, but the market, you know, sometimes dictates to them what they need to do rather than what they really want to do. So it was it was 
a natural transition for him to get back to the diversified farm and bringing the animals back and, you know, growing the food for them because it's it just, just a natural thing to do. So we're... So, yeah. Well, I'm sorry to interrupt, but were the genetics of the animals that you are raising now passed down from his father? Um, or was he raising Berkshire pigs? Or is um, that something you guys um, founded when you took over? Well, we, you know, his father knew a lot about pigs. He was, at the time when he was raising pigs, more of the commodity pig. Mm-hmm. And cause that's just his market. That's what the market he was selling to wanted. Right, the, the bigger, faster, all mm-hmm. like what we mentioned before, get bigger, get out. Exactly. That's just what the industry dictated, and that's kind of what he needed to do. He didn't realize there were other markets. Right, commodity is the exact opposite of the market that you're trying to promote, which is the heritage and the exactly. smaller scale. Heritage, smaller scale, know your farmer, you know, support that kind of mentality, and, and that's awesome. So when we were choosing pig breeds, we, um, you know, his father was talking about the lard pigs they raised when he was a boy mm. and all these different breeds. And the Berkshire hog just, it met the needs of what, you know, our customers are wanting, the restaurant. Um, we just didn't have a lot of people making lard. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, so, so there was we, a- we looked at some other heritage breeds. We wanted to do the heritage breeds, mm-hmm. save a breed by eating it. Yes, but, definitely. Uh, <laughs> we wanted to make sure that we could have a consistent hog and and finish it for what the customers wanted to. So, yeah, well, I've definitely heard from many chefs actually that the Berkshire breed is um, most consistent in terms of its fat and marbling. So, the fact that there was a market for lard, you're, I mean, that's just you know very convenient and um, would definitely give you a reason to support that breed. At the same time, um, is the Berkshire known to do well in your region of the country? Oh yeah, that was a factor. <laughs> they do very well here. Um, gosh, most any hog would do very well here. And um, that, and we'll probably do some other breeds as well um, as we kind of venture out. We'll, we'll sample some other breeds just to have some more genetics <laughs> on farm. So once so. you and uh, Wes decided you didn't want to work in labs, how long ago was that? So how long have you been um, doing this operation? That was, I think, 99 when we... It's almost nine, nine or ten years. It's hard to remember. (laughs) (laughs) We moved up here in 2000, so yeah, it's been nine years. Time flies. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) Um, What farming tips um, has uh, Carter, Wes's father, passed down to you? Oh, gosh. Uh, He's been pivotal in everything that we do Mm -hmm. um, to keep us from making mistakes. Um, that can cost, you know, you make one mistake at the beginning of a season, well, that costs you a whole year. So he's been, the, you know, brains behind what we do, and it's fortunate that we have him there all the time to say, hey, is it ready to plant? Um, is What's wrong with this piece of equipment and those kinds of things? Yeah, he's been pivotal and uh, in, in helping us even get the hogs going and, the cattle just because of his experience 
Do you and Wes have any children that are going to continue on with the next generation of uh, the Swansea farmers? We have we have a three year old Graham. He uh, hopefully he'll decide to farm. Um, who knows? <laughs> Do you guys have him helping out yet? <laughs> oh yeah, he helps me. You know, when we're picking things, he helps during deliveries because I still do the deliveries into the city. Um, and so, yeah, he's, he's right there with us. He's part of it. So you guys kind of are third generation already. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so who are the members of your production chain that you interact with that are most important to your survival? Wow. Besides the people that are, besides the, the two full-time guys we have working uh, for us, I guess, gosh, our our butcher, our slaughterhouse would be, without him, what would we do? <laughs> um, we're fortunate to have one 10 minutes from the farm. And is Not he state inspected or USDA inspected? Uh, gosh, he's currently going through the whole um, paperwork. should be federal within the next few weeks. Um, but, yeah, right now they're state inspected but they will be federal very soon. It's just paperwork. Yeah, paperwork. That's never fun. <laughs> so that allows you to bring your meats down into Atlanta and and Decatur, where um, some of these restaurants that are um, looking for your, your, your pork are located, correct? Oh, yeah. So once you guys become USDA, that allows you to sell all across the country then. Oh, yes. That, that opens up new doors, Home. even though I... I would prefer to try to keep my meat in, in my region mm-hmm. because I know there's, you know there's pig farmers everywhere that are looking for markets in their region, and it's so hard. Um, I'd prefer to collaborate instead of trying to become this huge national thing. But, yeah, it does enable us to sell all over the country, and, and that might be beneficial in the future. Yeah, well, what is the maximum size for a model like the one that you have? Wow, uh, I guess feed would dictate that one. Feed yeah. and acreage. Feed um, <laughs> and how crazy do we want to get? Right. I, I don't know that we'll ever get more than sixty or seventy sows. Mm-hmm. I just think that's what we are comfortable with. And sixty or seventy sows produces about how many animals? I mean, how many baby pigs? How uh, <laughs> <laughs> they average about. Piglets. Let's see. I'm trying to do the math here. <laughs> we oh, um, it's a few hundred. <laughs> Is that a few hundred a year or? Yeah, yeah. It's probably about um, I I guess we're right off the top of my head about we'll say 900 a year, 900 to a thousand pigs a year. Wow, and uh, that's not the the current size you have right now. How many sows do you have right now? Yeah. Right now we have 40. Okay, well, that's, you know, you're almost there. So you're producing a lot, which means Atlanta is really buying from you guys. That's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, we, we, we like our market for sure. That sounds uh, like a, a great success already. Do you have a five- or ten-year plan? Oh, gosh. Well, I hope we're continuing to do what we're doing. Um, and, you know, I hope we just get better and better and evolve, uh, we'll probably look more into figuring out, you know, do we build a facility to cure meats and nice. do some, you know, some more interesting cured meats like salamis and things like that. Um, 
Now, would you bring in like a chef or like a cure master or, or would you guys try and, you know, do it from the ground up and uh, become your, you know, your own cure masters? We're always so grassroots and really raw. Yeah. We probably tried doing it ourselves for a awesome. while until we found someone that seemed to fit and right. find our cure master, sure. That's cool. I like that. He finds us uh, some, you know, old cookbooks and some charcuterie books. And uh, next thing you know, you're producing lardo and pancettas and whatever all, your heart desires. Yeah, all kinds of fun things. Great. Um, well, how, how will changing global weather patterns affect the, the foods you raise? Uh, wow. Well, for us, since you know, we are dependent upon ourselves to feed um, our animals, you know, if it's too wet or, uh, gosh, we might not get a crop in mm-hmm. uh, or we might lose a crop, we are looking at constantly um, getting some more local people involved into, if they don't want to certify organic, fine, but at least growing non-GMO mm-hmm. varieties of corn and soybeans so that um, we can feed our animals, you know, at the bare minimum, non-GMO uh, feed. And um, GMO genetically genetically modified crops. Um, I think that's important to you know. Yeah. Even if someone's growing conventionally, at least the genetically modified issue can change a lot of things. Um, but gosh, how the guess we'll continue to just try to adapt and evolve change with the weather. I guess um, you would need some tools there to overcome nature's obstacles. Are there any that you can think of that will help? Let's say there's too much rain at some point or not enough sun. (laughs) Too much rain is hard because it's hard to get rid of the water. Mm -hmm. Um, Drought, we do have irrigation um, because our farm's bordered by a river. Mm -hmm. So as long as the river's flowing, we can continue to irrigate. So it's fortunate. Um, but, you know, if there's not enough sun, wow, uh, <laughs> that would be a tough one. Um, uh, how would you say technology hurts or helps your farm? Well, you know, the tractor, things like that. We, we love our tractors. Hmm, I'm sure. They do. <laughs> it's easier. Um, Especially with the amount of land you guys have. Yeah, it definitely makes a difference. Um, we want to pull in more solar uh, for a while, we were, gosh, for at least a few years there, we were using biodiesel uh, until it became cost prohibitive. Oh, really? And, yeah, it actually became more expensive than diesel. Hmm, yeah, gas prices did go down, so I could see why that would have changed. So it, it kind of made it difficult for us from an economic standpoint to, to continue, even though we really enjoyed using biodiesel and everything. But did you... Um, did you then have to go ahead and change some of the, um, you know, some of the equipment you were using that was f- to run on biodiesel or diesel fuel um, back to regular? Um, most, most everything we use is diesel, mm-hmm. um, so it was, it's a matter of changing your fuel filters. Okay, know. so that's not the worst thing in the world. Oh, no, that was that, minimal. That's easy <laughs> <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, I'm sure. Yeah, um, but technology, I mean, um, fortunately we... The Internet's been great to help sell things. Yeah, definitely. With the outside world, we don't use a lot of that high-tech stuff that some industrial-scale farms use. It just seems superfluous. 
why would we use it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like positioning things. I mean, I, we just don't really have a need for that kind of thing. But, you know, tractors, irrigation pumps, things, that type of technology has been wonderful. Um, but, you know, to, we, we could, if we didn't have our tractors, I guess we could employ a, about 20 families to do all the hoeing and the wow. <laughs> Well, that would be that would be a, a way that I guess technology maybe hurts the community, if anything. Not to some degree, but uh, <laughs> that would make food costs very high. I definitely agree with that. <laughs> um, what would you say? Um, well, what is American food to you? Oh, wow, gosh, I'm spoiled. I'm. I'm <laughs> what is American food to me? Yes, yeah, said. Well, you hinted at something there when you say you're spoiled. Yeah, I, I fortunately I everything pretty much everything that I eat I know the farmer will get it from. So I'm going to drink milk. I know my dairy farmer. Um, if I cheese, same thing. Um, so and even if I go to eat in a restaurant, I know where most of the food has come from on my plate. Right, you probably and, know the chef too because he's buying from you. <laughs> yeah, so that's not. I mean, a lot of people look on their plate and they don't know if their food came from South America or China or where. Yeah, you and are you are spoiled in that sense. That's really that's great. It must taste really yeah. good too. So for me, American food is what the farm. You know, I can put a face on it. You know, everything on my plate. If it didn't come from my farm, I know that it it came from somewhere pretty close by, and. It's wonderful if everyone ate like that, but it's not reality. Um, not yet. Hopefully one earth. day. <laughs> the, the masses are eating processed food, and most of them don't know what they're eating. And, um, you know, that's just that. I mean, for the masses, I would say American food is sadly almost Walmart, <laughs> which is sad. Right. Tragic. Well, Charlotte, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Um, Thank you for being a a guest on the Heritage Radio Network, and we uh, definitely look forward to having you on again soon. I appreciate it. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. And happy Mother's Day. Oh, thank you. Take care. All righty. Bye. Bye.